Welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Sahar Khan, a visiting research fellow at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. The world is experiencing a number of humanitarian crises, but there is one that gets very little attention here in the United States, and that is the ongoing Rohingya crisis that has engulfed Myanmar and neighboring Bangladesh, both poor and developing countries. The Rohingya is an ethnic minority within Myanmar and is predominantly Muslim. They have been experiencing state-sponsored discrimination for decades now. But this latest crisis began last August, when a small Rohingya group attacked an army base and police posts in Myanmar, killing 71 people, including 12 security officers. Myanmar's army's response was swift and brutal. Over the next several weeks since the attack, reports of Rohingya villages being burned down, Rohingya men being rounded up and killed, and Rohingya women being gang-ripped by Myanmar soldiers began to emerge. About half a million survivors are now based in refugee camps in neighboring Bangladesh. Today, we are delighted to welcome an expert and scholar of South Asia, C. Christine Fair, a Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in the Peace and Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She was just recently in Bangladesh, conducting research on the Rohingya crisis, and we're looking forward to hearing about her experience and research. Welcome to the podcast, Christine, and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. But before we get into the Rohingya crisis, let's discuss some world news. A lot has been happening worldwide. So in Yemen, the Saudi-led coalition is seeking to restore exiled President Abdul Rabu Mansur Hadi back to power and carried out airstrikes against critical water facilities in the port city of Hodeida. How, does these, how do these airstrikes help the coalition's purpose? And what effect will these strikes have on the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Yemen? So from my point of view, this is, um, this is an atrocity that I think very few Americans even know that we are facilitating. And we have been one of the biggest providers of weaponry to the Saudis. And from the Saudis' point of view, they're trying to feed the Houthis, who they see as an Iranian proxy. So it wouldn't, it's not a surprise that in our contemporary regime, we are going to be siding with this Saudi-Israel axis, um, you know, in opposition to Israel, excuse me, in opposition to Iran. I just wish more Americans knew about it and, and would oppose what we're doing. Yeah, I, th- I think the the coalition sees the the port obviously as the the main sort of uh, critical mass of the the Houthi uh, rebels, and and if they get the port, they've got eighty percent of the food and arms and other things that are flown into the country, uh, and that's exactly why the UN is so worried, and others are so worried about the crisis on top of the crisis. I mean, it's already the world's worst humanitarian crisis, and if they start. Uh, bombing and 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 moving military forces into Hodeida on in you know for serious, it, it's going to get just almost unbelievably worse. I, the problem is I you know you could see it as like a coercive effort. Okay, we're going to threaten to you know invade Hodeida and then the Houthis will give up. But I, I don't think the Houthis see it like that. So it you know I this is just grim. Yes, exactly. And I think what's even more troubling is the the Yemeni people. I mean, there's a cholera outbreak um, that's going to turn into an epidemic. They have no access to food, to medicine, to really anything. Um, and I think that's sort of a larger problem in of itself. I mean, there's sort of the general geopolitics um, proxy war going on, and then there are the people who are actually suffering and have no way out. And it doesn't seem like anybody else is really concerned about their welfare. Um, but moving on, um, Pakistan has a new prime minister. 
Uh, on July 25th, Pakistan held its third consecutive general election, and Pakistan Tehreek Saf, the political party run by ex-cricketer Imran Khan, won enough seats to declare victory. But still, um, he needs to form a coalition government to, to rule. Um, and he's going to take over the prime ministry office on August 11th. Now, Christine, you have been studying Pakistan for decades and have written on Pakistan's elections recently as well. So what do you think of Imran Khan? And what kind of prime minister is he going to be? And um, what impact would a Khan-led Pakistani government have on U.S.-Pakistan relations? So in the scheme of things, this was, in fact, a general election because it was, in fact, the generals that got him elected. You also, you have a PhD on, on, on Pakistan's domestic politics. You know as well as anyone else that until even a year ago, he had really failed to transform his party uh, into a national presence. And because of the horse trading that was subsidized with Pakistani ISI bags of money, he, the uh, it, the deep state, if you will, because that seems to be a term that everyone's using these days, was able to get um, members from other parties to defect. And it's not it's not just that the members of other parties defected, but also in Pakistan, these po- politicians have vote banks that they take with them. In fact, the PTI had become renamed the Pakistan Turncoat Industry, noting the the fact that these people were defecting. So this was one of the critical ways in which the Pakistan army manipulated the election before the election, in addition to harassing, detaining, and arresting um, uh, their nemeses, which is the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz. And then, of course, their handmaiden in all of this has been Pakistan's Supreme Court. I mean, they were, uh, for the last several years, actually, since Zardari changed the constitution to take away powers from the presidency, which the army had always used previously to prorogue parliament, the army had to quickly innovate and find a new way to bring down governments. And ever since the Zardari period, we have seen the Supreme Court very willingly playing this role. And then, of course, finally, uh, the army coerced the media into only depicting Imran Khan's party as the savior of Pakistan and, and denigrating other parties. So this isn't really his victory. This is the victory, really, of the deep state. And I think this idea that he is somehow going to do things differently is also absurd because the prime minister it has no powers whatsoever. I mean, he's more like the mayor of Islamabad, and his powers don't even extend to Ralpindi, where the army is headquartered. So what a prime minister can do, and this is why, for example, Nawaz Sharif was so um, irritating to the army, is that the prime minister can increase the friction between what the army would like to do. So, for example, Nawaz Sharif um, antagonized the army by by having kumbaya words towards India, um, arguing that Afghanistan should be a neighbor and not a client. And these are things that the army found very irritating because anytime there's a pocket of support for Nawaz's preferred policies, it causes the generals in Rapindi to have some heartburn. So yeah, my argument is that um, Imran Khan, he is a little bit um, new. He will learn very quickly how his wings will be clipped. And the ruling from the Supreme Court in August that you have to be sadek and amin, you know, trustworthy and honest, uh, terms that are in the Constitution but not defined, he will find that being an alleged coke addict, a serial womanizer with a number of other personal peccadilloes will make him very vulnerable to the assertion that he is neither sadek nor amin. 
No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think what's even more interesting for U.S.-Pakistan relations is that it's not really going to change anything because two of the core issues remain the same, which is the U.S. accusing Pakistan of militant sponsorship, and there's a lot of empirical evidence for that. And the second thing is safeguarding Pakistan's nuclear weapons. Those are two core issues that it doesn't matter um, which administration really is in power in Pakistan. Well, and let's not forget, Imran Khan is called Taliban Khan for a reason. In fact, is I can't believe I left this out. Um, there were about 900 explicit militant associated candidates contesting this election. Labayek had, and they are the, the, the folks that get exercised if you um, discard a piece of newspaper that, that might have something that looks like the word Muhammad and put it on the ground. Um, they ran about 600. The Milli Muslim League, which is the terrorist arm, of Lashkar Taiba. They ran a couple of hundred. And this militant sectarian outfit, ASWJ, ran another couple of hundred. They all got trounced at the polls, by the way. But the very fact that they were in his coalition and one of the final parting words that Imran made um, as the campaign wrapped up and people went to the ballot was an incredibly divisive exhortation about Emedi Muslims. And Emedis are, it's basically open season on Emedis in Pakistan. So not only do I expect no friction between Khan and the deep state's policy of uh, supporting terrorism, I suspect there's going to be um, com- complete agreement on, on those policies. I think that's right. Um, so moving on to Egypt, the U.S. is releasing $195 million in military aid to Egypt. And a U.S. State Department official stated that this aid, which was restricted for the past year, has been reinstated because Egypt has responded to specific U.S. concerns. But the U.S. official didn't specify what the concerns were. Um, so what do you think the concerns are? And what kind of signal does this aid send to other countries with questionable human rights records? The overall message is that we really don't care about human rights. And that's been a consistent message coming out of this White House. It has done everything possible um, to make sure that 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 message is very clear. You know what one interesting exception is? It's been the U.S. administration's public position um, as voiced by Ambassador Nikki Haley on the Rohingya. It is, in fact— to my knowledge, in the portfolio of countries that I study, the only country where we have actually voiced in international fora, vociferously, in fact, concerns for human rights. Yeah. I, I, the original reason for the holdup was human rights concerns. Clearly, those have not been alleviated in any real way. Ha ha. Not even close. Uh, and in fact, it's funny because um, for, for a project I'm working on right now, um, I've been collecting data on arms sales and security assistance and comparing that across uh, the globe. And one of the striking findings so far is just how one-to-one the relationship is between crappy human rights record and sending them millions and millions of dollars. I mean, yeah. this is, you know, the, the purported reason, of course, is, well, if we don't do it, the bad guys there will be, you know, emboldened and, and the good guys will lose. And, and I'm still trying to find any of the good guys. Oh, and, look at our Israel policy. I mean, I, I, I'm stunned at, at what we've done there. And you've nailed it. We, but I'll say with the exception of the Rohingyas, um, which is I, I'm a little bit baffled why all of Well, I actually know the reason for that. But um, that's the one exception. 
I think that's that's absolutely right. And with with regards to Egypt, it's been really troubling how the conviction rates have gone up. The jail, the Egyptian jails are full. About 3,000 family homes were destroyed in Sinai um, because the Egyptian military said that they were going after ISIS. Um, they don't really seem to care. And it, now it seems like they're being rewarded for their counterterrorism efforts, which is basically a bunch of human rights violations. Um but shifting gears a little bit to the topic, um, I wanted to ask you questions about the Rohingya crisis. But before we actually dive in to what the crisis is, um, I wanted to start with a little background. So who are the Rohingya and who is persecuting them and why? So oddly enough, the who is the Rohingya is not an easy question to answer. The word itself appears to be quite new. Historians of of this area can only find one uh, pre-independence, that is to say, colonial era reference to anything that resembles this word. Linguistic historians note that Rohingya is really derived from a Sanskritization of Rakhine, which is the area in which these people live. And of course, historically, um, Rakhine has shared borders with Bangladesh. So part of this story is about colonialism because you'll remember from the three Anglo-Burmese wars, the Brits annexed Burma. And then um, during this period, the British, because of the opening of the Suez Canal, rice became very profitable and they wanted to maximize the profit from the rice fields in what's now Myanmar. So they began bringing in Chittagonian Muslims because now it's it's a within empire movement. And um, Indians from all over the Indian empire began coming to Yangon. And what you saw in the late 20th century, early 21st century, was a, was a guttural reaction to the Indianization of Burma, so much so that the, and, and of course, the majority um, citizen of Myanmar, who's now a part of the Braj, they're, they're, they're Sinhal, they're, excuse me, they're uh, Theraveda Buddhists. So what initially began as an anti-Indian sentiment over time morphed into an anti-Muslim sentiment. So, so much so that they demanded that they be separated from the rest of the Raj to deter this within Raj movement. And so in 1937, Myanmar, then Burma, became a separate colony of the British. And so you no longer had this free movement. But these the antagonism about these wealthy Indians taking over businesses, becoming much more successful than the indigenous people. When I read what the uh, Myanmar Burmese uh, Buddhists say, it, it sounds an awful lot, for example, like what Nazis would say about Jews, right? You know, this minority, but yet they're so much more successful than us. There must be some reason. So the first time we really see this word Rohingya being used occurs in 1942. Now, you'll remember that the Japanese invaded. The Buddhists supported the Japanese invasion. The Muslims, who are at this point considered Chittagonian or Bengali Muslims, Bangladesh doesn't even figure into it, um, they support the British. And in fact, the British are, we see from the historical record, they're incredibly grateful 
not only did the Chittagonian Muslims support the British, but actually all of the, the Northeast. And so this is another interesting story about India's history. So there is, when the, when the Japanese invade, there's this power struggle. And we begin seeing these really horrific ethnic clashes between these Chittagonian Muslims and Buddhists. And this appears to be the first time when this word Rohingya becomes in use. And so there's this idea among scholars that this is a term that was produced through ethnic violence. And so it's at this interesting conjunct, you know, this interesting intersection of colonialism, World War II, this religious and ethnic fissure that's really exacerbated by the invasion of, of the Japanese. So the in some sense, the conflict between Indians and the Buddhists in Myanmar is quite old, but the association with this Rohingya group is somewhat new in the sense it goes back to the 40s. But what people don't understand is that there's also this conflict between the center, you know, Yapidaw, and Rakhine State. Rakhine State is one of the most undeveloped states in, now there's a lot of undeveloped states in Myanmar, so, you know, like everything has less fat than lard, right? So there's also this conflict between the state and the center, and there's also a conflict within Rakhine State itself. So initially, this conflict between the Chittagonian Muslims, now called Rohingya, and the Buddhists of Rakhine, this is a, a, a traditional resource dispute. But then over time, the dispute with Muslims became a much more general phenomenon. So the Islamophobia that's happening today in Myanmar isn't just about Rohingya. There are a bunch of other Muslims who were previously considered to be, you know, okay within the, the context of the state, but they're now also subject to persecution. So going back to your question of, of who then is doing the persecution, this is pretty straightforward. Um, it is vigilante. Buddhists with support from the state. Then in the most recent predation, which began in August of 2017, this was precipitated by ARSA, which is this uh, Myanmar, uh, this, uh, excuse me, this Rohingya militant organization on Myanmar security forces. And they use that as a is the excuse to do this massive crackdown. The goal was to drive them out. Now, by the way, there's right now over a million Rohingya in in Bangladesh. Um, there's virtually no chance that they're going to return. By the way, um, some of the best for people who want to learn more about this, because what happened at the end of 2017 was the most recent and the most extensive crackdown. But there had been previous ones, notably in 2016 and prior to that, 2012, and then prior to that in the 90s. So the International Crisis Group, um, they're, the guy that does their reports, he's been living in Myanmar forever. He has an interesting story of how he came to, to do this stuff. He was, he was teaching English to, to uh, militia members in Thailand, right? So he's just his, – his work is really solid. So I, I strongly recommend the, the human rights uh, excuse me, the International Crisis Group reports, um, as well as the human rights reports on, on Myanmar. Oh, great. And so um, Myanmar's government continues to link 
the Rohingya population with terrorism. And this is sort of the latest that we've heard about it. And especially considering last August when ARSA actually launched their attack, it became sort of this big thing of they must be terrorists. So you were just recently in Bangladesh. What's your sense of, I mean, does this thing exist or is it fictional? And it's also in Myanmar as well. So does this thing exist? It does exist, but what is it? So here's what we do know. Uh, the leader of ARSA is actually a diasporan Rohingya. He was born and raised in Pakistan. He also spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia. We know that he sought out help from Lashkar Taiba. He was very disappointed in Lashkar Taiba. He sought out help from other groups as well. So we do know that this thing exists. Now, what is quite fascinating about ARSA is that if you go to its Twitter feed and it exists, it is an incredibly confident Twitter feed. Anyone who's been to Myanmar will tell you no one speaks English like this. This guy is who, who this guy or set of persons, whoever is running this Twitter feed, they're tweeting in um, colloquial American English. And their messaging is is really on point. And the idea, the 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 consensus is that a lot of this is being driven by the Rohingya refugee population in Malaysia. Right. They are a very I mean, they're they're a conflict diaspora. So their equities are 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 very much in getting justice for the Rohingya. Um, and by the way, I'm you know, if I were in my writing, I, I'm ambivalent about the use of this word Rohingya. It's a neologism. It's a political word. Um, and that's another question. Why do they insist upon using a word that is so antagonizing? within Myanmar, but also within Bangladesh. I mean, they're insisting upon a word that denies them credibility in either of the states where they live. And so then I have to value their investment in that word, right? If, if, if insisting upon it costs them so much, it must mean something. So as a scholar, I can only note that. And since Rohingya is the word which everyone uses, that's what I'm going to use. But when you go to Myanmar and you say this, you will be met with um, you will be screamed at, basically. Rohingyas, Rohingyas don't exist. So going back to your question, I do not buy that this is a jihadist organization. Their attacks have been very few in number. They have made no claims to Islamism. Now, the anti-Muslim, you know, bucked set in India will make much of the the struggles in the 1940s and 50s, and they use the word jihad. But anyone who knows that history, many of the Muslim freedom fighters considered themselves to be mujahideen, and they were waging jihad. So this is what I will call, you know, cherry picking an emotive word. Um, and then there was also a time when the Rohingya or Chittagonian Muslims in Myanmar went to Jinnah and asked to be included in, in Pakistan, and, and Jinnah actually said no. So there will, if if you want to make an argument that these are jihadis, then you can go to this history and you it's like fact you know, specs in a kaleidoscope. You can you can make that picture. These are jihadis, but if you actually look at what they do and what they say and what they want, it's very difficult to make that argument. What do they want? They want to be citizens. They're not asking for independence. They're asking to go home. They're asking to not be killed. They're asking for protections. No Islamist ends there. <laughs> now, Myanmar, Myanmarese or, you know, there's because there's also some question about what, what do you refer? Folks in Myanmar will say, well, if you look at Arsa's flag, they have all of Rakhine State, 
right? So this is a complicated question. But if you then ask how do they organize, how they we, what we do know is that they used WhatsApp. So they had a very Jamaat Islami like structure where in the three main provinces of northern Rakhine State, the Malvi was sort of like the like the squad leader, if you will. And he had a bunch of folks underneath him. But their weapons were very crude and rudimentary. I mean, they were sticks. They were machetes. Um, they were taught to make crude bombs. Not a lot of sophistication. But we also can say is that after the attack in January 2018, we've seen nothing else from them, right? So I would say this. I don't believe that they're jihadi. They're Stated goals are not that. Second, it is in everyone's interest to paint them with that brush. China is doing a lot of things that are very similar to what Myanmar is doing. They are putting their their uh, Uyghur Muslims into essentially concentration camps. That's what the Myanmar government has done there. The Russians are similar. You know, look at all of Myanmar's allies including India. They are very vested in securitizing Muslims. And so there's another, so you've got this Myanmar, Russia, China, India polygon, but you also have this other interesting connection between the Theravada Buddhists of Myanmar, Thailand, and Sri Lanka. All three of these countries kind of view themselves as like a Theravada Zion, and they, very much like India has this love jihad nonsense, they also have purport a love jihad, where sexy Muslims are seducing, you know, Buddhist women who just, you know, who have no agency at all, right? By the way, I love the love jihad story because it basically says that um, Muslims are better lovers. Now, to me, that's fixable, right? I mean, come on, dude. There's a bunch of online resources, you know, wage some frame you back. But they have this idea that Muslims are overly fecund, that they're trying to seduce Buddhist women, and they're trying to drive them into the sea. So you also have this religio-cultural, um, if you will, there's, there's just no nice way of putting it, this coalition of really radical Buddhist monks who are bad news. And they used Facebook. Um, to basically propagate their messages of hate. And, and some of the anti-Muslim riots in Sri Lanka and Myanmar were precipitated actually by Facebook posts. So Facebook, which I also believe owns WhatsApp, is responsible for a lot of bloodshed. They've got a lot of things to answer for. So the UN um, and the Bangladeshi government and even the Myanmar government wants the Rohingya population that's in Bangladesh and in other areas to go back and resettle back into the Rakhine province. Um, you were just there. You were in Myanmar and Bangladesh both. What was your experience like? Can they go back? Um, what are they going back to? So now just, you know, you can't you can't as a foreigner go to the three townships. The, the farthest you can go is Sithway. Um, and I wasn't allowed to go to the IDB camps in Sithway. But there is literally a Muslim ghetto. And I mean ghetto in the historical sense of Nazi Germany ghetto where people are ghettoized, they can't leave. And when you can't move, it means you can't earn money, you can't get food. Unlike Nazi Germany, there's no mechanized uh, means of murder, right? And they do, the, the government does let the international community in to feed these people. So they're not starving, but they certainly are remain um, in a humanitarian crisis. There is no sense of when they're going to be allowed to leave. Now, these are the several hundred thousand 
uh, Chittagonian Muslims slash Rohingya that are in Myanmar still, those who are in Sithwe. Now, those ca- those camps go actually back to 2012, right? So this is this is a compound humanitarian crisis. There are still some Rohingya in the townships. They are in complete lockdown. We know nothing about what they're experiencing. What we do also know is that, and we know this because of the work of intrepid reporters who've been arrested, that the what they've done is that they've bulldozed over any burnt the ground and bulldozed over any evidence that these people lived here, right? So under the 1985 citizenship law, it would be very difficult for any returnee to prove citizenship when everything about their existence. Now, there there will probably be some administrative records, but hang on to that because not only will it be very difficult, the criteria that that the UN and Bangladesh has agreed upon, is it has to be the conditions for voluntary return, now, what the Rohingya want for voluntary return is that they they want to be recognized as citizens. Now, this seems very straightforward, right? Why wouldn't they want to be, right? What's the problem with this? It seems so reasonable. Well, it's not reasonable from the point of Yapida um, because there is a big conflict with Aung San Suu Kyi and her military, right? From Aung San Suu Kyi's point of view, she is a Burman aristocrat and she has never been anything but, and she's always been anti-Rohingya. And she faces an election in 2020. From the point of view of the average Buddhist in Myanmar, what the army has done is a public good. And the army is fighting the elections in a way that benefits them. It's a fixed fight. When they transferred power, they got 25% of the vote. 25% of the seats in parliament is fixed, right? So they only have to get 26% of of, of the seats. To, to, to form the government. And she has done a terrible job reaching out to these ethnic groups. So between 2020 and now, you're not going to see any effort to, to do anything. Plus, because the folks in Myanmar, they don't recognize the Rohingya as, as, a, as a native Myanmar ethnic group, the Rohingya's insistence upon being recognized as ethnic Rohingya make it very, very difficult. But even if they took that away, no one is going to bring these guys in. Sheikh Asina herself has an election coming up. And she does not, she doesn't want to take the pressure off of Myanmar. But if you go to the camps, as I have, it's basically um, a deforested moonscape. Right now we're in the monsoon season. I mean, this is, they are in a in a perilous situation. The camps were unplanned. They're on low ground. I mean, some of these camps you can see um, online, they're, they're just becoming lakes. Now, who is protecting Myanmar at the UN? I mean, that's the question that we have to get to very, very quickly and we have to understand. So basically, Myanmar is getting away with this because it can count on a co-veto by the Russians and the Chinese. This comes down to arms sales as well as, you know, a general kumbaya about the danger of Muslims. Um, the, the Myanmar army relies overwhelmingly upon Chinese um, sales. But it, China is also, not only are they having this carrot, they're also beating Myanmar with a stick. China also funds many of their large ethnic armies, including the WA. Um, Their provision of arms to the WA include artillery and combat helicopters and missiles for the same. Right. So if you're the if you're the Myanmar army, you're kind of annoyed with China and they're interested in diversifying. And thus, Russia becomes very important. If you go to Cypri and you look at the arms sales, um, Russia is really 
the desired long-term alternative to the Chinese. Myanmar's air force, I mean, they don't want to take anything from China, right? And China is, in fact, subsidizing the very groups that they need an air force to fight. So the air force is very keen to get equipment from Russia. India is very important. India not only has shares this anti-Muslim drama, but the from the Indians' point of view, if you look at a map of India, you'll see this thing called a ch- the chicken neck, which connects the bulk of India to the northeast. What India would like to do is move stuff from Calcutta to the port that they've made at Sithway and move those goods through through Myanmar up to the northeastern states to provide it an alternative line of, you know, ground line of communication in the event that that the chicken neck gets cut off. And it's also competing with China, which also has a port at Chaopu. So when you, and there are so many other strategic issues that get layered onto this, the U.S. has its own strategic interests. On the one hand, Nikki Haley can talk all she wants about the Rohingya. The State Department can talk all at once about Rohingya, but we have a we have a civilian military divide. The military wants to wants to have an IMET, an international military education training program, with with the um, the military in Myanmar. And their argument is because we didn't have IMET, that's why the the military is so bad, right? We can just make them better if we have some IMET training. You you hear some cynicism here. So what the U.S. will actually do. Um, is very much in play and, you know, and subject to the vicissitudes of this administration, which is, you know, vicissitudes on crack anyway. So those are, you know, the strategic level. I don't see Bangladesh getting any relief. There's not going to be any relief from Myanmar because there's no strategic compulsion. Domestically, it's only costs. And then Sheikh Hasina herself is doing some really uh, making some very bad decisions because she wants, it's sort of like the Palestinians in Jordan. They want to keep those camps there so the whole world can see the gaping eyesore. But what would be better is if she distributed this one million throughout the rest of Bangladesh. And that would also take pressure off of the the land and so forth. But she's not going to do that for political reasons. So basically, Bangladesh is going to be stuck with these Rohingya. Well, on that note, I think it's a good point to end, and it seems like the crisis is not going to end. Um, Thank you, Christine, for such an insightful discussion on what really is one of the largest ongoing humanitarian crises in the world. And thanks, as usual, to our producer, Jeff Geld, and all of you out there for listening. Find us on Twitter with at CatoFP to continue the conversation.